you've been tracking with us, then I, I should rightly begin, because we're kind of leaving to be continues, that now that we've all been filled and empowered by the Holy Spirit, what now? What next? They say that somewhat facetiously. It's a serious matter, but we've seen the last two weeks that being filled and empowered by the Holy Spirit is vital. And according to Mark, it's the way he wants to begin to reveal Jesus of Nazareth, Jesus, the Son of God, Jesus, the coming Messiah. He shows from the beginning that the the Spirit of God has descended upon Jesus, rested upon him. The voice from the Father says, this is my Son whom I'm well pleased with. And then Jesus ministers for a number of years in powerful ways, bringing the kingdom of God to earth. And Mark wants us to see that it was only possible through the empowering of the Spirit, the way Jesus lived his life fully dependent on the Spirit. And last week I walked us through a number of passages, promises to us who follow Jesus, that we too have that same Spirit living in us that we must rely on, depend on, draw upon, and be empowered by to represent him, to be agents of his kingdom. We must live spirit-driven lives. His life is the model for us. So foundational things, foundational to receiving rightly this good news account, according to Mark, about who Jesus is, what he has done, what he's promised to do for those who follow him. And first, we are always in need of being filled with the Spirit, for those who follow Jesus, we may be able to point to a first time where we are, there is evidence of an empowerment of the Spirit. It may not be a feeling. We don't depend on feelings. Although the experiences of the Spirit can also be powerful in real ways. I've been able to experience many of them, but they're not every time where I see the work of the Spirit and can point to, yes, there's an evidence, there's a growth, there's a fruit that simply was not of me. And that's sometimes the evidence that we see of the fruit of the Spirit. While we may be able to point to a first time or a first experience of the Spirit working in our lives or filling us, bringing some of the fruit that Paul describes, it should not be the only time. It should be an ongoing. We continually need to be filled and empowered by the Holy Spirit. So even this morning, we can ask, seek, and ready ourselves for a refilling of God's Spirit. The Spirit is eternal. He does not need to be divvied up or fractioned out as if you could do that with something that's eternal. God is not stingy with pouring out his spirit. It is his desire for those who follow him to know of the spirit dwelling within them. So even ask and seek and then pray and believe, God, I take you at your word that you are pouring out your spirit, that you are filling us and empowering us for the work of your kingdom today and in the days ahead. And then we pray like that father did in Mark 9 that we'll get to. Lord, we believe. Help us with our unbelief. Maybe one of the most powerful, simple, real prayers that we see in the scriptures. I certainly resonate with that. So Lord, we believe. Help us with our unbelief. The apostle Paul would teach that we collectively as a church and we even individually are meant to be like temples of the Holy Spirit. It's why that image of the the torn veil, the torn curtain of the temple when Jesus died upon the cross is so powerful because that used to be the separation of God's dwelling place between him and people, between him and humanity. When that was torn, the evidence was there's no separation. 
When the Spirit would be poured out upon the church, the evidence was it's for all people. Paul reminds us in 1 Corinthians 3, 16, do you not know that you, this is the you plural, you collectively are God's temple and that God's Spirit dwells in you? But as I said last week, living in the power and the presence of God will likely change everything. That should be our first questions when we start to believe and proclaim and even experience that the Holy Spirit has been poured out, we would say, Lord, we believe you have poured out your spirit upon us. Now we ask, what must change? How can my life, my words, my deeds, my attitude represent you and your kingdom in greater fullness? Now, warning, fair warning, this kind of praying is not for the faint of heart. Being filled with and empowered by and trusting the Holy Spirit's leading in our lives is anything but ordinary or tame. Look what happens to Jesus immediately after the Spirit is poured out upon him at his baptism. Both the baptism of, by John of the water in the water and the baptism ultimately of the Holy Spirit upon him. Let's read that, that quick section again in Mark chapter 1 verse 9 and then continue into verses 12 and 13. Oh, 12 and 13, look how far we're getting today. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee. It was baptized by John in the Jordan River. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open. There's that comparison to that veil being torn and the spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven. You are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. The Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness. And he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals and the angels were ministering to him. There's that word immediately. A couple more times. It shows up 42 times in 16 chapters. Only about a dozen times in the rest of the New Testament scriptures. Mark has an urgent message to share. He gets right to the point. It's very real and raw. That's why I love this, this gospel account, the shortest of the four. Once again, clearly an example of an upside-down kingdom, wouldn't you say? If, if you were reading it for the first time or hearing it for the first time, it would not line up with the script that you would expect. As we are reminded and we've seen already in these foundational foundation-laying sermons to receive the gospel according to Mark. Jesus has been anointed for kingdom work to come to bring heaven to earth, to change the world ultimately, to bring healing, <clears throat> deliverance, salvation, justice. And the first thing the spirit does in his life is take him away for 40 days. So if we were writing the script, we would probably say at minimum, a new king has come and has been announced to lead a movement. Start gathering the militia. Start gathering and building a following. Now, he will do that. A worldly kingdom would, eventually, would immediately march on the power structures of the day, maybe to Herod's temple, to confront either the Jewish religious leaders or even the Roman leaders. That's what we would expect. Instead, upside down, the spirit drives him into the wilderness, into solitude for 40 days. There was a more crucial battle to fight against a more oppressive and dangerous enemy. You can flip to 
Matthew chapter 4 or Luke chapter 4 to see the extended version of this account. Mark keeps it short. But the, the temptations that come to Jesus, and I'll just say this because I'd love to preach on it in depth. It's a powerful story and example for us, but Mark doesn't, so I leave it. But the temptations are very symbolic. Bread, mountain, temple. Scholars have pointed out they represent economic, political, and religious power and authority that Satan is offering to Jesus, tempting Jesus with, that he and the power of the Spirit refuses to walk in service and sacrifice, to do the opposite of the kingdoms of the world. Satan is trying to tempt him to do it the way of the world. He is the ruler, the prince of the world. The apostle Paul says in, Philippians, or in Ephesians chapter two, that transaction took place way back in the garden. Satan had been given an authority. Now he's offering it to Jesus in this big stroke of irony. The one who created all things and has all authority but another evidence that Jesus walked in his humanity while on earth to win it back and to take it back in a whole different way, not with force, not with a demand of what is rightfully his, but by laying down and sacrificing his whole life. Truly remarkable. We can point out a couple things. And since it's cold this morning, unless you're in the back rows, your back is warm, I hope. I'll point out a couple observations and a couple applications. First, first observation from Mark's account. <clears throat> Jesus triumphing over Satan's temptations was meant to establish him like a second Adam. The apostle Paul would, would describe Jesus as a second Adam, one who was rightly redeeming and restoring what ultimately Adam and Eve succumbed to in the temptations. Jesus triumphs over. You could find that in Romans 5 or 1 Corinthians 15. Some of that comparison language, Jesus being the, the second Adam. Where Adam yields to the temptations of the adversary, Jesus triumphs. Adam is meant to have dominion. This is one of the first things God gave to Adam and Eve was dominion over the earth to care for it, to steward it, to rule over all living things in it. That was ultimately traded in that transaction with the adversary, with the serpent in the garden. As they tried to become more like God and failed to see the manipulation that was taking place, they ultimately gave their authority over to Satan, who kept it and still is the prince of this world. And I think that's why Mark points out, he's the only one of the gospel's writers to point out, Jesus was with the wild animals. Seems a little out of place, like a random, a random thought. It's going to be such a succinct uh, description of those 40 days, and that's what you choose to put in? I believe it's to help us see that Jesus is actually redeeming and fulfilling what has been broken and lost. He does have all dominion and all authority. He's with the wild beasts, and you read between the lines, they're not harming him. And maybe it's a nod to Isaiah 65 in the messianic promises of the restoration of God's kingdom where the wild beasts will lie down with the lamb. And we see that in Jesus, I believe, to make a clear comparison that he is like the second Adam, bringing restoration of God's presence with humanity. Where Adam and Eve, when they succumbed, what was the consequence? The primary consequence was separation from the presence of God. They were restricted from dwelling with God. 
And the whole rest of the story could really be summed up as God restoring that dwelling place, that connection, that closeness with people once again. Jesus, by his faithfulness, is restoring dwelling, restoring presence, restoring place. That's observation one. Observation two, the 40 days, that's symbolic. If you haven't read through scripture, you haven't noticed. But if you have, you probably have noticed the 40 continues to show up. There's a sense of fullness and completion about the number 40. In the days of Noah, 40 days of rain in that great flood. See, 40 often represented a, a, a full season of hardship or trial or difficulty. The, the giant Goliath, the Philistine giant, taunted Israel for 40 days before the deliverer David came in victory. 40 days, Moses was up on the mountain while people were in, the Israelites were in anguish below Mount Sinai. The storm was on the mountain. They thought he was lost. They doubted, they failed. And of course, in that broader picture, that 40 years of wilderness wandering where they doubted God's presence and faithfulness, though he was showing it miraculously day by day. I think it's very clear that Jesus had this battle to fight and begin to triumph over the enemy in those 40 days in the desert to represent where Israel, God's people, had failed previously. Jesus was faithful. He relied on God's word and his presence. He did not give in to doubting or dismissing or to even the pains of hunger as he was fasting. And I think it's a very clear connection when you know what Jesus' name in Hebrew is. Because as the Israelites were led finally out of those 40 years by who? Joshua, Yeshua, into the promised land. The name Jesus is the name in Yeshua in Hebrew. And I think Mark would expect in at least some understanding that Jesus is now coming to fulfill that time, to triumph and to lead God's people into a new place, a new land, a better one in his kingdom. Ultimately, Satan was using his powers to manipulate, to try to corrupt, and to keep power over the world. The temptations at their core were for Jesus to establish his kingdom in a worldly way, thus succumbing under the way of Satan. In the power of the Spirit, in the reliance of God's word and truth, Jesus endures and triumphs and then is able to minister. It's both a fulfillment and a foreshadow of Jesus's triumph over Satan upon the cross and through the grave and ultimately the one that we're still hoping for, the coming fulfillment of the kingdom reign. Because of that triumph in those 40 days, we see and have the promises of victorious living in Christ. So, information, is there any application? Yeah, a couple things. I think just seeing that Jesus is tempted, we can't brush past that. It's a pretty remarkable thing that Jesus himself was tempted. And again, I think a powerful evidence, maybe one of the top of Jesus living in his humanity and relying on the spirit to strengthen him. Because you might know the apostle James writes in James 1.13, let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. So hear this part. 
For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. So we've got a contradiction on our hands here. If, if our answer to the question of how did Jesus endure under the temptations of Satan, if the answer is, well, because he was God, and we diminish the fact that he was even tempted, we've got a contradiction of Scripture, and we, we cannot truly become like Jesus. We stop, we stop very short. If, as I said last week, if all of our answers are because Jesus was God, that's how he lived and did those things. How can we then follow him and become like him? But if, on the other hand, Jesus in his full humanity was tempted to give in, to yield, to doubt and distrust, but in the power of the Spirit triumphed, well, we can relate to that. And he models for us what it is to be victorious. And that's not just my idea or others' ideas. The scriptures themselves teach this. The author of the Hebrews, chapter, chapter 4, verse 15, said, We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. In every respect, Jesus, our high priest, has been tempted by the same kinds of temptations that might assail us by the adversary. Let us then, verse 16, with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Because of Jesus' triumph in the power of the Spirit, we have the hope when we face those temptations to also triumph in the power of the Spirit and draw near to the throne of grace and mercy. How desperately do we need that? We are pervasively tempted in the same ways. And that, that, could be, that could be varied. We could go anywhere with that. So staying on point, what was Jesus being tempted with? To do things the way of the world. To give in, to yield, to distrust and doubt, to, to take upon himself the ability to lead and script his own life. Do we not feel that deep temptation to take and keep, not give and bless? To seek comfort and securities rather than service and sacrifice? To use or oppress people for our own gain and pleasure rather than elevating the lowly and giving voice to the silenced? To build walls to keep people who are different than us outside and excluded? to maintain tribal allegiance rather than breaking down walls of division wherever possible, to name a few. These are temptations that maybe assail us every day because walking in trust and dependence on the way of Jesus to live in his kingdom is hard. It's counter-cultural. It's counter-intuitive. It's upside down. Our great high priest was tempted in all of these worldly ways, yet he triumphed in the power of the Spirit. He shows us it is possible. 1 Corinthians, this is Paul again, chapter 10, verse 13. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to mankind. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may, may be able to endure it. We have all likely yielded to temptation rather than endure. We will all likely do so again today and this week. But it is not hopeless as we are reminded every time we face that, 
doubt and distrust of God's will for our lives. There is a way to triumph in the power of the Spirit. We can walk in the same way as Jesus. Jesus shows us the primary way of victory is being confident in the purpose he has been sent with and a power that is not his own will, but in another. So often we rely on our, our self and our own will to white knuckle or to get through or to endure a temptation. Jesus shows us by his identity and his purpose and in the power of the spirit is how we, how we are victorious. He speaks the word as we see in Matthew and Luke. He knows it and he speaks truth to Satan's lies. That's how he endures. And his purpose is so sure of his life. I'm here not for my will, but for God's will. It's he I am following. And I must be faithful to it. May we also endure and triumph over all of the temptations that come our way. That we could say with such confidence that we've been sent as kingdom agents and representatives that that is the greatest adventure we could ever follow in our primary work, that all other earthly things and pleasures and powers are fleeting and empty. And in our purpose and in the power of the Spirit, we triumph. That's application one. Application two. I've been holding on to this one, and you probably noticed it right away, didn't you? The Spirit drove Jesus into the wilderness to be tempted. That's unexpected, isn't it? As we said, that's not maybe the way we would write the script, but even more unexpected is the language being used. The spirit ekbalo, Jesus, into the wilderness. Now, that's a Greek word that probably doesn't make sense to most of us. It's a forceful word. And ironically, it's used by Mark 11 times when Jesus himself drives out evil spirits out of people. It's the same word. The gospel writer Matthew says it this way, describing Jesus in Matthew 21, 12. Jesus entered the temple area and drove out, ex malo, all who sold and bought in the temple. There's force to it. There's necessity this doesn't mean Jesus wasn't willing to go into the wilderness, but he was being driven by the Spirit. Jesus models for us what Spirit-driven living looks like. He had to face Satan and endure. And we know Satan would not give up. But as I mentioned, it's a fulfillment and a foreshadow of what is yet to come of the coming victories until that day when Jesus comes in fulfillment. In the meantime, we who follow Jesus and are asking and entrusting in the filling and empowering of the Holy Spirit should be, must be, prepared for the unexpected. It's anything but boring and tame to follow after Jesus and to invite the Spirit to lead us because he may not just lead us gently by hand. He may drive us into whole new places, into opportunities into experiences that we may want none of, ultimately. Are we prepared to walk in that kind of dependence when it could lead? This isn't an all-the-time leading of the Spirit. We, all, we are told to walk with, to keep in step with the Holy Spirit. But if this is the very Spirit of God, it is possible that he will drive us if we are willing, not unwilling, but willing 
into places of incredible opportunity that might be absolutely stretching or difficult for us. Now, to be clear, the Spirit did not tempt Jesus. Satan did. But the Spirit knew what was coming in the wilderness, that there was suffering and hardship and difficulty coming for Jesus. And he drove him anyway. God was going to use it in a decisive way, in an essential way. I've heard many people say something like, if, that, if that's what it looks like to follow Jesus, if that happens to the Jesus followers, I want none of that. I've heard others, even family members say, and I, just, when I, just when I started trying to live a good life, to turn it around, to try to follow God's way, everything crumbled. I'm done. I want none of that. It's a complete misunderstanding of the promises of God. While God does deliver, love to deliver, rescue, heal, provide for, and those are his promises ultimately for those who follow him, he does not promise ease and comfort, trial-free, hardship-free, suffering-free living now. In fact, likely he drives us into those places in essential ways to grow us and to make us into a testimony of the only way to endure with joy and peace and faith has to be supernatural. There is no other explanation. Unto him be the glory. Jesus himself promised tribulation, not ease. Our promises aren't for pain-free, suffering-free, hardship-free lives. The promise is for strength, endurance, presence, and peace in the midst of the hardship. Jesus says in John 16, 33, I've said these things that you might have peace because in the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, be of courage. I have overcome the world. He's already declaring his victory both probably in that wilderness, reflecting on that victory over the worldly forces and the coming victory over Satan upon the cross and through the grave. So the question I have for us today is, will we yield to the spirit and the will of God or will we yield to the temptations of this world to doubt and dismiss, to withdraw or to take control, to seek comfort and ease or safety and security as if that's even possible? We should seriously be doubting that pursuit in the world that we live in today. I believe Jesus is inviting us and challenging us to follow his example, relying on the filling and empowering of the Holy Spirit to see hardships, trials, temptations, wilderness seasons like the one we are currently living in, to see them as formative, preparatory, perhaps even essential to build in his church and his people a resilience, a strength, a fortitude, a long-suffering that may not be able to be gained in any other way. Grant us, Lord, grow in us these things that we might also triumph to be the kind of world-changing kingdom agents that, Jesus, you were and we could only hope to live up to if you would send us and be with us. Send us into our homes, neighborhoods, community, and world. 
Now is the time in this season and coming through it as God leads us for the church to both be refined and awakened, for the church to be strengthened with resolve and endurance where the adversary of God wants to bring division, despair, and death. And by evidence, it seems like he's winning. May his efforts totally backfire because in the power of the spirit, the church actually rises up triumphant and victorious as it always has through the ages of greatest persecution. And may it be the light to the world that Jesus says that we are. May it be, church, I believe it. I'm with you. I believe it now in this moment. I probably doubt it tomorrow. So we pray, Lord, we believe. Help us in our unbelief. Lord, we need your filling and refilling of the Spirit and the reminder of your presence yet again. Forgive us for our complaints and our doubts. Turn them into fortitude and strength and resiliency as we walk after you. Drive us, Holy Spirit, into new places if that would be your will and if that's what you need to grow us and strengthen us. Open up doors, break down walls. We say we are willing and we do so with some trepidation. But we have no other option. To whom shall we go except after you? Make us into your disciples. Bless each one here, Lord, in a powerful way. Lead us in the coming days. Renew our hope and strength and peace and confidence in you and your kingdom alone, we pray for your glory and our joy. Amen.